you recall, our previous two messages. One was devoted to the Apostle Peter. The other was devoted to the Apostle Paul, the two main characters, if you will. Uh, Of course, there was a load of supporting cast in the book of Acts, but the two main most prominent individuals in the book of Acts are the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter. And as you recall, uh, we don't have to review all of that, but they had very different ways of coming to the ministry. But now they were united for the cause, and God was doing great things in the church. But what we find now is we turn our attention to the first Jerusalem council, which, by the way, if you have a first Jerusalem council, that kind of assumes there's going to be a second Jerusalem council, which we will come back to next Sabbath. But at this first Jerusalem council, there was an issue that arose within God's people. And I say God's people in a very, very very delicately here, because at this time in the church's history, the Jewish nation was fully convinced, as God had said, that they were his peculiar treasure, his special people, distinct from all others. And of course, we understand that their job was to be distinct, to represent a distinct and unique God to the rest of the world. They were to be ambassadors for him to a fallen world. But over the course of their history, they began to see distinction and differentness just for the sake of being different. They just wanted to be special and peculiar in a standoffish, isolationist kind of way instead of a light to others, right? And of course, the history of Judaism is basically the development of that idea. But now Jesus Christ has come. Those Jews who were yelling, crucify him, have been converted, many of them. The Holy Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost And you find that they were all together in one accord. It was beautiful. It was harmonious. It was wonderful. And it was fleeting. Things went very well. In fact, if you were to do a quick survey of the book of Acts, you'd see in chapter 1, Jesus is there for the last time giving his uh, instruction to his apostles before he ascends into heaven. And, of course, Matthias is then chosen to replace Judas amongst the apostles. Then in Acts chapter 2, you have the day of Pentecost and 3,000 are added. In Acts chapter 3, the church grows. In Acts 4, the church grows. Everything is going well. But you see a bit of a problem arise in Acts chapter 6 when a dispute came up amongst God's people between the Hellenists, the Greek-believing Jews, and the Hebrew-believing Jews. Those from Jerusalem, from Judea proper, versus those from a different place speaking a different language, though both were Jewish, And both are now converts to Christianity. Even after their conversion, there were still strife and discord. You know, sanctification doesn't happen instantaneously. It's the work of the lifetime. They were converted. They saw the truth of Christ, but he was still growing and working in their lives. And there were some nationalistic, some cultural, some ethnic biases and prejudices that the Lord needed to root out of their lives. And of course, you recall, in Acts chapter 10, the apostle Peter was called to go speak to Cornelius. And the moment the call came to go speak to a Gentile, Peter said, here I am, send me. Of course, not so much. Actually, he said, I will, no, I've never eaten an unclean thing. And you remember the dream of the, the sheet and the unclean animals. And, he's, and the Lord has to say, what I have deemed clean, you no longer call unclean. Of course, he wasn't talking about food. He was talking about people. 
He said, Cornelius is on his way. Speak to him. So the Lord had repeatedly, prophetically move on him to get him to basically kick him and brought him along. And Peter was astounded when he got there. He preached the gospel to this Gentile and he accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior and the Holy Spirit was poured out and Cornelius and his household began to have the same manifestation, the same evidence that the Holy Spirit was working, speaking in tongues, as it happened to the apostles themselves on the day of Pentecost. And Peter was shocked. In fact, we go to Acts chapter 11. Now, all this is introduction. I understand that. But go to Acts chapter 11. And as soon as he gets back from that mission that the Lord made him go on, basically, Verse 1 of chapter 11 gives us a kind of a glimpse as to the mentality, the mindset of the Jewish converts. Again, these are not the non-believing Jews. These are Christians who happen to be Jewish in their heritage, right? Now, it says in chapter 11, verse 1, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. What does it mean to contend with someone? Argue, to debate, to discuss, right? Saying, you went into uncircumcised men and, now you would think, it would say, and worshipped idols. Or, you know, ate some unclean. What does it say? What was his big crime? And ate with them. You socialized with those people. In the rest of Acts chapter 11, Peter basically has to explain, no, 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 it's like, I'm with you, brother, and I had the same thought. The Lord himself, through his Holy Spirit, had to kick me down the road, but I couldn't believe it. I got there. This was the thinking of the time that leads up to what we're going to find at the first Jerusalem council. But before we begin our study now, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, entrusting with the responsibility of ministry, and Lord, for not just leaving us where you first found us, but growing us into the image of Jesus Christ. Help us to learn these lessons from sacred history. And through the leading of that same Holy Spirit, Lord, apply those lessons in our lives even today. But we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, what's fascinating is, if you go to the end of chapter 11, after Peter tells his experience to the very skeptical Jewish believers, again, let's make clear we're talking about believers in Jesus Christ who still had this cultural prejudice, says here in verse 18, when they heard these things, they became what? Oh, that must have been wonderful. All the disputing and discussing. And notice what it says. And they glorified God, saying, Then God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. They're like, you got us, Peter. We're with you. We needed to hear your story. You had some explaining to do. But you explained it. The Holy Spirit worked. We're with you. God has given the message to the Gentiles as well. And that seems like, oh, that'd be wonderful. It's beautiful. But watch what happens now. As now the transition now, that's the end of basically 
Peter's involvement outside of the day of, uh, outside of the the uh, first Jerusalem council in Acts chapter 15 which we're going to study today that's pretty much the end of Peter's involvement as a main character in the book of Acts it transitions to this experience with Cornelius but then the baton gets passed to another apostle the apostle Paul and the apostle Paul goes around and does work and we see that he doesn't always make people happy now again recall the apostle Paul has a very different experience than the apostle Peter Paul used to be Saul, the persecutor of the Christians. The Jewish of the Jew, the loved Sadducee, I mean Pharisee, he was just, he was a member of the Sanhedrin, he was violent against the church, he was there at the, uh, giving his voice and consent to the death of Stephen. And after that, he started a persecution on the church that was unheard of. And Oh, he was loved by the unbelieving Jews then, because he was fighting for the true Jewish nation. But of course... Jesus himself had to change his perspective on things and literally knocked him off of his horse, spoke to his heart directly, and Saul was converted, eventually becoming Paul the Apostle. But of course, he hadn't been part of Jesus' cadre of followers, his his followers, his disciples all along. And when he goes to the the, the believing Jewish people, they view him with skepticism. They're like, uh, weren't you the guy that used to be, you know, killing us? So we can't, and, and they kind of hold him at arm's length, and they kind of look to Peter like, Peter, what do you think of this new guy? They look to Peter as their thumbs up or thumbs down guy. But he can't go over, the Jews had a particular target against Paul. And all of this boils up to a big, big problem where the Apostle Paul is preaching and doing great work among the Gentiles, who Christ himself said, I've set you apart to be my minister to the Gentiles. But watch what happens in Acts chapter 15 now. So we get to where we're headed today. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. Now notice they're not in Judea, they've come from Judea. These are the Hebraic Jewish people. The believers in Jesus Christ but still very culturally Jewish. They come down from Judea to this Gentile area where Paul has been preaching. And Paul is saying, Brethren, you can have the Lord Jesus Christ. He's preaching an evangelistic crusade. And these gentlemen come in and preach a different message. And what is it they're preaching? It says here in verse 1, Acts 15. Taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses... You cannot be saved. Notice he doesn't even say, you cannot be our friends. He's not saying that. These people are saying, salvation is through this ceremony alone. Paul and Barnabas disagree, as the Bible records. Verse 2, look how politely it puts it. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute... Friends, if it's, not a small, if it's not a small dispute, then it is a large dispute. Right? This is Bible language for, then they had a big fight. Okay. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others, others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. 
well, all right, Paul and Barnabas, you're just not hearing us. And Paul and Barnabas, no, 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 you're just not hearing us. And they said, all right, let's, let's take it to the church council. So they said, let's send it, let's put everything on hold. You're not going to preach further. We're not going to harass you. Let's just take all of this conversation, bundle it up, and let's go back to Jerusalem to the elders and apostles. Let's see what they think about this. Now, where had these men come from? Right there in the text in verse 1, where does it say they're coming from? Judea, where Jerusalem is, right? So they're like, why don't we take this back to the headquarters of the believing Jews, and we'll see what they think about it. I'm guessing they thought they were going to vantage ground. We're going to go back to the home office, to Jerusalem, and they're going to correct you, Paul and Barnabas. Of course, Paul, has, Paul says, okay, that's fine, but notice how Paul goes back. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. So they went home, but they were telling everybody they saw about how the great work is being done among the Gentiles, which has to further infuriate this dispatch of people. And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So in the midst of all this report about what the Lord's doing among the Gentiles, they stand up again and say, folks, I mean, I, I know those stories are great, but come on. you got to circumcise these people or they're not real Christians. Bottom line. Now, let's think about this from their perspective. We can piece this together, by the way, from looking at the end of Acts 15, which we're going to be coming to in a minute. And what they did resolve should be incumbent upon the new Gentile believers. They didn't say, hey, don't worry, there's no expectations now, you just come. No, 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 there were some certain things they had to abide by. And there were some legitimate concerns. Think about this. Uh, Idolatry, for instance. New to the faith, Gentile converts would be prone to unintentionally uh, participate in the marketplace of idolatry through food, b- purchasing, and merchandising to things that have been dedicated to idols. They would be propping up the idol trade, even though they wouldn't personally be involved with it. They would have a temptation to have that still attachment to idolatry, and they wanted to make sure that that wasn't the case. By the way, sexual immorality was a very big deal amongst the pagan cultures. Okay? Given the depths of pagan immorality, converted Gentiles posed a risk to Think about it. From the Jewish perspective, if you let all these Gentiles, these pagans in, they're going to compromise the faith and lower the lifestyle standards in the area of sexual immorality. You've got to teach them right from wrong. You can't just have them come in willy-nilly and just be part of the movement. You've got to sit them down and talk about standards and lifestyle. And that's a legitimate point. By the way, in Acts of the Apostles, page 192, The Gentiles, especially the Greeks, were extremely licentious. And there was danger that some, unconverted in heart, would make a profession of faith without renouncing their evil practices. They're just going to jump along in and bring their culture and all their sinful immorality with them, and you're going to dilute the faith. You've got to be careful of this. They had some legitimate concerns about these pagan Gentiles. Also, at the end of Acts 15, they tell them not to eat things with blood and things strangled. Apparently, they had some health and food and meat concerns with them. Gentile use of meat, and especially of blood, was 
was both offensive to the Jewish culture and it was out of harmony with the instruction that God had given about health in his word. By the way, again, let's summarize these. In Acts of the Apostles 192, we read the legitimate concern. Listen carefully. The Jews, therefore, this again is the believing Jews, therefore held it as highly proper that circumcision and the observance of the ceremonial law should be enjoined on the Gentile converts as a test of their sincerity and devotion. So they couch their argument like this. How do we know they're not going to just be pagans who got you know, baptized real quick at a weekend revival by this Paul guy who we don't even know, and the other day he was persecuting us, Right? And they're not going to come into the church with all their idols, with all their immorality, with all their blood-eating meat stuff. They're going to make a wreck of this thing. We need to give them a test of faith so they can demonstrate their loyalty to the Lord. And they said, that's what circumcision's there for. That's what it was for us, and that's what it needs to be for them. And you're like, well, you know, they kind of have a point. How do you know you're not going to get a whole bunch of just Johnny-come-latelys who have no concept of the real faith? Test them. Give them circumcision. Okay? Continues. This, they believed, would prevent the addition to the church of those who, adopting the faith without true conversion of heart, might afterward bring reproach upon the cause by immorality and excess. This is a good litmus test. It's a good filter. No Johnny-come-lately goes through circumcision you got to mean it if you're there, right? They say, let's hold them to the highest standard. That's what God required of us, and that's what we should require of them. And they have some legitimate grounds. But there's a bigger issue. That's just the cover story. The real issue is they just didn't like non-Gentiles. I mean, they didn't like Gentiles. They were Jewish, and they wanted to maintain their unique, distinctive Jewish culture. Watch this now. Again, page 189 now from Acts of the Apostles. From the result of the apostles' labor among the Gentiles, it was evident that the converts among the latter people, that is the Gentiles, would far exceed the Jewish converts in number. So they're watching Paul and Barnabas go out and do their ministry and missionary work, and they're seeing all these great numbers of Gentile and pagan converts, and the number of Jewish converts is kind of slowing down. And they're saying, all right, the church is growing and we're losing our majority status. If Paul keeps this up, we're going to be minority, and someday Jewish culture will simply be antiquity. It will just be gone. We have to hold the standard high. We have to give them this test to maintain our Jewish distinction. Okay? So, it goes on. The Jews feared that if the restrictions and ceremonies of the law were not made obligatory upon the Gentiles as a condition of church fellowship, the national peculiarities of the Jews, which had hitherto kept them distinct from all other people, would finally disappear from among those who received the gospel message. You know, they had this concept that they were just Messianic Jews, but Judaism, the Jewishness, the cultural Jewish thing, that would always go on forever. They say, but if we keep this up, we're all just going to be Christians. Right? We're going to lose our distinction and our peculiarity. We've got to maintain that. So they were concerned. So they they had some legitimate concerns, and they used that as a front for their real concern, is we're just going to lose all the Jewish majority here. And we're just going to be all equal with the Gentiles. 
Ugh. Can't have it. So, this combination of genuine concern and cultural prejudice made the situation seemingly impossible, almost impassable. Or as Mrs. White puts it on page 192 of Acts of the Apostles, the various points involved in the settlement of the main question at issue seemed to present before the council insurmountable difficulties. So they brought these issues. you got Paul over here and Barnabas preaching to the Gentiles. They're all accepting Jesus. And the Jews making some very legitimate-sounding points. And the question comes to the apostles and elders. All right, circumcise or not? Let's vote it up and down. And apparently, from the elders and apostles' standpoint, they were just like, what? You know, from our perspective, that was almost 2,000 years ago. Well, duh, don't have them be circumcised. Well, we read the end of the book. They were still writing the book. And from their perspective, this seemed like a mountain too high to climb, a river too wide to cross. How do we solve this out? So what happens? Let's pick up the Bible again. Verse 6. Now, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. And when there had been, what's the next two words? Who, much dispute among who? According to the text there in verse 6, who was there meeting together to discuss this? The apostles and elders. The 2,000 years ago band of brothers you just saw up here today. <laughs> the representative of the churches, the elders, the apostles themselves we're still wrestling with this issue. Is it possible for an apostle of Jesus Christ to still not know everything and still need to grow in grace a little bit? Absolutely. Watch this now. And when there had been much dispute, lo and behold, surprise, surprise, Peter rose up and said to them, now, Peter rose up. As long as this man has legs, he's going to stand up when somebody needs to say something, right? Peter's like, I got this. <laughs> you know? And again, as we're going to see in Acts chapter 15, Peter is not the officially recognized leader of the church, but he is the unofficial spokesman for the church. He's the guy everybody turns to. Let's just see what Peter says. Let's talk to Peter. Peter's going to have something to say. Oh, boy, you're going to have to face Peter. Peter raises up. But watch what he's rising to say. This is of critical importance to the resolution of the matter. Why does Peter rise first? Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Pause right there. How do they know that God had chosen them for that purpose? Think about it. Who are these people now making the accusations? Let's go back now. And, and you notice that the people who were originally contending with Paul and had them come to Jerusalem were those of the circumcision, right? They were believing Jews who thought you had to be culturally Jewish. And they're attacking Paul for preaching to the Gentiles. This is very much like what we see. If you keep your finger there in Acts 15, if you go back to Acts chapter 11... Chapter 11, verse 1. We just read it, but now see it in the light of this. Now when the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God, and when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him. These same people had already fought with Peter on this issue, right? 
saying, you went into uncircumcised men and ate with them? And Peter had to give his explanation. But Peter does it from the perspective of, brother, and I was with you, man. I'm one of you guys, except the Lord had to talk me into it. And Peter's explanation finally calmed them, as we see at the end of Acts 11. Notice again, verse 18, when they heard these things, when Peter told the tale of the sheet and the vision and Cornelius and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, just like it was upon us at the day of Pentecost, they, when they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, then God has also granted to the Gentiles the repentance to life. But now the same people in Acts chapter 15, are now contending with Paul on the same issue. Which tells us something, friends. Is it possible to have the Lord root out something in your life and it creep back up and you fall back into it? Their old prejudices were stirred up. They see that the Gentiles are going to outnumber the Jews and, oh, we were wrong to accept it. we got to go back and we got to... And their same song, second verse. Both Peter and Paul have now faced the same group of people with the same argument. Thus it is that Peter stands up and says, Brethren, you know. How do you know? Because I've already explained it to you. We've already had this meeting. That by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. Verse 8, he continues his explanation. So God, who knows the heart... Acknowledge them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. He's like the same Pentecost experience we had, the Holy Spirit gave it to them too. So the Lord has made his decision about this issue. And notice that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon them was before they were circumcised. They haven't been circumcised still, and they're okay in the eyes of God. So who are we to lay extra burden than God has, is his basic point. Verse 9, and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, now watch, this one had to probably sting a little bit. But he's one of them, right? He's telling the truth here. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, again, think of their contention. Circumcision, if they're willing to do that, would demonstrate that they're truly converted. His argument is, wait, wait, wait. All of us men and brethren have been truly converted, and we were the ones who killed Christ. Obviously, circumcision in and of itself doesn't bring about conversion. It's not a necessary evidence of true conversion. The evidence of true conversion is a changed life, not just some cut skin, right? That's what he's looking for, is genuine conversion, not just an outward sign that, okay, that can cover up for whatever inward mess you've got going on. No, 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 no. What God wants is a circumcision of the heart. And he's saying just enforcing that outward sign isn't going to convert anybody. But, verse 11, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. We all need the same Jesus. Same forgiveness, the same conversion, circumcised or not. The real issue is an inward issue of the heart. And notice verse 12, how striking it is to eleven eighteen, when they all became silent. Look at verse 12 now. Then all the multitude kept silent. Because Peter got up and spoke, right? 
and listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. So you notice that Peter cleared the path of their prejudices and said, hey, hey, we've already dealt with this before. You know. And they're like, yeah, you're right, you're right. He brings them back to their previous experience, calms them down, and then Barnabas and Paul can clearly, distinctly say, brethren, we're with you, but i got to tell you, the Holy Spirit is working out among the Gentiles too. And they start telling their testimonies from out in the field. Okay? And he goes on to say, after it says, they listened to Barnabas and Paul declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. Verse 13, and after they had become silent, James answered, saying, men and brethren, listen to me. So Peter clears the way, and everybody gets quiet so they can listen to Barnabas and Paul. Then after that, they're like, okay, now they've got, we've got the testimony of Peter. We've got the testimony of Paul. Everybody's sitting there thinking and quiet. And then James speaks up, who apparently, as we're going to see in a few moments, is the recognized leader of the early church. Goes on to say, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, which of course is another name for whom? Peter, right? Has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. By the way, it's an interesting point if you read it, how God at the first visited the Gentiles and took out a people. He's like, the Jews came out of the Gentiles. Remember, Abraham was called out of his father's household so that he could be a light to the Gentiles. He didn't separate them just to be separate. He separated them so they could go back and shine a light for the Gentiles. The whole purpose was to be a light for the world. And now they understand the import of these Old Testament scriptures that they had been misapplied to the Jewish nation as this distinctly peculiar, can't touch anything unclean kind of thing. He said, no, no, the point of separating us is that we'd be a light in a dark place, not just a light under a bushel. Right? So he goes on to explain And with this, the words of the prophet agree. Now, I want you to think of this. Methodologically, practically, God had given Peter a prophetic experience about what to do in ministry. They compared that with Scripture and found that it harmonized and that their previous position was in error. Was the light given to Peter about going to the Gentiles and Cornelius, was that new light? No. Did it seem like new light? Yes. Not because the Scripture had been in error, but because their application for so long had been in error that it seemed radical and new to them, but it was simply a call back to what God had intended for them all along. Notice this, that the prophetic insight, this gift of prophecy that Peter experienced, this message from the Lord directly, did not contradict Scripture. It simply upheld and illuminated and applied Scripture to their current situation. And then they could see, aha, this is showing us how Scripture lines up. That makes sense now. So it's not Peter's prophetic experience trumped the Scripture. No, 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 no. It clarified the people to see that they had been out of line the whole time. And it lined them up correctly. That's the purpose of the gift of prophecy. It goes on. And he quotes Old Testament scripture that talks about that. Verse 18, 
known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore, notice this, I judge. Apparently, who had the last say? James. Not Peter, not Paul. Therefore, I judge that you should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain, and it lists off. There are some certain things you need to watch out for, because there are some legitimate concerns, right? Abstain from things polluted by idols. Don't bring your idolatry into the faith of Jesus Christ. The same God in the Old Testament said, thou shalt have no other idol. You know, no graven images is still God of heaven. From sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. So there's some diet issues, some lifestyle sexuality issues, some idolatry issues. Those are legitimate concerns, and those need to be dropped off at the door. But to just make you peculiarly Jewish by a mere ceremony that has no practical import, we're done. Verse 21, For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city, being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Then, notice the miracle here. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. Now, what was their attitude coming in? And I don't know if you've ever been to a church board or church business meeting or a constituency session or even a general conference session, whatever you've been to where the organized church comes together to discuss a disputed matter. And it's not always sunshine and roses, right? You get a group where there's two strong opinions coming into it and they clash. It takes an outright miracle of the Lord to soften hearts and change minds. Let me tell you, friends, the biggest miracle that Christ does is not sending manna from heaven or parting the Red Sea. Or The biggest miracle, the most consistent, the most powerful evidence of the reality of God is a changed heart, a genuine conversion, a humility, old-fashioned saying, I was wrong and I'm sorry. Or I accept your apology, and I'm right, but I'm going to be right in a humble way instead of a proud, pompous, ha, ha, you're wrong. Bringing believers into Christian unity is a powerful evidence of the working of the Holy Spirit. Verse 22 again, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who was also named Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brethren. They wrote this letter by them, the apostles, the elders, and the brethren, to the brethren who are the Gentiles, in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, greetings. Now, think about it from, we know how the letter ends, but think about it from the Gentile perspective. They have been put on hold while the believers go back to Jerusalem to find out if they need to be circumcised. So they're waiting on pins and needles to find out what's going to be expected of them, Right? And here they come back with this letter, and they wrote it down, and here's what it says. Verse 24. Listen to the beautiful humility and honesty and transparency of this letter. Greetings. So this is the official church speaking to the people in the field, the new believers, the Gentiles coming to Christ. Greetings. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying, you must be circumcised and keep the law, Notice what they say, to whom we gave no such commandment. They weren't representing us as a whole. Sorry you had to go through that. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
We have therefore sent Judas and Silas who will also report the same thing by the word of mouth. For it seemed good to whom? To the Holy Spirit. Because who decided this issue? The Holy Spirit. He had decided it all the way back in Acts chapter 10 by sending Peter to Cornelius. Right? Peter simply brings up the... He's like, you can have your point, you can have your point, but let me bring in the Holy Spirit's point. And everybody else is like, that's a good point. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And so you can imagine the Gentiles. Okay, what are the things that we... What are the necessary things? Number one, that you abstain from things offered to idols. You're like, yeah, that makes sense. We're good. From blood and from things strangled. Like, okay, we can do that. No problem. Diet reform, health message, we're with you. And from sexual immorality. Like, yeah, you're probably right about that. (laughs) If you keep yourselves from these... You will do well. Farewell. Gentiles like, that's the whole list? No, no other item on the agenda? Like, don't worry about it. You're fine. Verse 30. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch. And when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. Hallelujah. And it goes on to say, Now Judas and Silas themselves, being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there for a time, and they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. So now the brethren, the Gentile brethren, send back word to the Jewish uh, believers, the leaders, the apostles themselves, and say, Thank you so much. What What a beautiful thing. Now the official church is working with the church in the field, and what just... Oh, moments earlier had seemed like an insurmountable difficulty actually came to be one of the turning points of the early Christian church. They resolved a doctrine. Think about this. Jesus was not there to turn their eye to and say, all right, you Jesus, you sort this one out. At least he wasn't there personally. He was there through his proxy, the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit, who is Jesus' representative, guided his church. And the evidence was a growing, unified, healthy body of believers. What a wonderful thing. And of course, they went out preaching the word. And friends, if only Acts 15 was the end of the book. Oh, that would be great. All the problems were solved, but you notice that there's an unsettling trend coming here. In Acts 11, they had already had this dispute resolved, and they fell back into their prejudices. Acts 15, they go through it again, except this time instead of with Peter, with Paul, right? And Peter has to correct them, because you know what it was... And they're, they're good on the same page again. But you see there's this unsettling propensity back to the old ways that's going to rear its ugly head at the second Jerusalem council. And that's what we're going to be studying next week. But in conclusion for this week, let's learn a couple lessons here. Lots, by the way, lots and lots of lessons we can learn from the first Jerusalem council. First of all, Maybe you didn't see this as important, but I see it as critically important, and I'll share it with you now, and that is the importance of church order. God is a God of order and organization. Many people who rail against organized religion have never actually seen it. They'd seen a false version of it parading itself around and using that name, but actually a discredit to the character of God. Difficult matters are to be discussed and decided upon for the whole church, and individuals and territories are not free to act out of harmony with each other. 
If this church were to disagree with, say, the Michigan Conference, we have no right to go outside of that. We need to go back to our brethren and prayerfully and biblically resolve the issue together instead of acting out on our own individually. God's a God of order and unity. Therefore, they sent the issue back. And notice that Paul didn't disagree. Even though he believed his position was right, and it was right, he didn't say, forget you people. I don't care about Jerusalem. I'm just going to go. No, no, no. Got to work with the brethren. Got to work together. By the way, Acts of the Apostles, page 195. The four servants of God who were sent to Antioch with the epistle and message that was, uh, was to, the message was to put to an end all controversy. So when they left that first Jerusalem council with that letter in hand, that was supposed to be the end of that matter forever. For it was, and why? For it was the voice of the highest authority upon the earth. Think about that. When God's people come together in prayer, the representative organized religion of God's denominational people come together, the Holy Spirit leads and actions are taken. We should regard that as the voice of God on the earth. Bottom line, we will have some issues that we'll have to resolve. But we need to learn from the Bible how to resolve issues before we even get into the discussion about the issues themselves. The church is neither a top-down dictatorship nor a bottom-up grassroots democracy where everybody has a voice. We are a spirit-driven republic, a representative form of government where we pray for those elected officials and they pray for the leading of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit works and the message comes back. It's a dynamic that works together. Second lesson, the crucial role of the gift of prophecy in providing clarification for difficult issues. Think about it. What if, Peter had had, what if the Lord had not prepared the ground by giving Peter the experience with Cornelius before Paul? God had called Paul to be a disciple to the Gentiles before the Cornelius experience. So why did he raise up Peter for Cornelius? It was in preparation for Acts 15. The Lord is not surprised by any of these things. He's making... So when Peter stands up, he has the respect, he has their ear, he has their confidence. And when Peter says that they listen to him. And Peter clears the path of prejudice so that Paul and Barnabas can make their statements and people can listen to it objectively and clearly and reasonably. It's powerful. That's the role, by the way, of the spirit of prophecy is not to give contradictory or new light or venture off away from Scripture, but to guide us back to the principles that God has been saying in His Word all along. Rightly, rightly understood, the spirit of prophecy and the Bible are beautiful comp, uh, uh, parallels. They work together. That's the whole purpose of them. Not one to trump the other, but one to lead back to the principles previously elucidated in Scripture. And finally, I cannot emphasize it enough, only the Holy Spirit can soften hearts, and change minds. This is a continual frustration to me. I'll be honest with you. Because I like to think things through and see how A leads to B and leads to C, and if someone doesn't see that, if I just show them clearly enough, then they'll get it. But did you know, you probably knew this already, there are people who, even if you show them DNA evidence of the truth, they don't want to hear it. The grass is going to be purple no matter what you say, right? I can show you how photosynthesis works and chlorophyll. I can show you that this is green. No, I don't like that. It's purple. 
that there is, there's a point in people's... Now, we have an obligation to clearly, succinctly, I think powerfully proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. We should do it to the best of our ability, but the best of our ability will never change a heart. Only Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit representative, can knock on the heart's door and change people from the inside out. And it's not just those out there. It's us in here, too. It's the church. It's even the leaders, the apostles, you name it. Friends, when there is a dispute amongst the brethren, our first response should be not to talk about the people, but pray for the people. We need to take it to the Lord in prayer. We need to be, look, use this as an opportunity. Maybe I'm in the wrong. Let me go back to the Bible. Let me see what the Spirit of Prophecy says. Enlighten my mind before I start railing things out again, you know? But Satan's goal all along has been divide and conquer, but Christ wants to unify and have victory. Mm. And of course, it closes with them stepping out and preaching the good news. This is what God wants, even in difficulties within the faith, to bring the people together on a solid platform of biblical truth so that we have a message, that we have a distinct calling, that we have a thing to do, we have a mission to go out and spread the gospel. And when those matters are resolved, when the Lord sends his Holy Spirit, that we march out and we work for the growing of the kingdom of God. This is the impulse that they were left with at the Acts 15 at the, at the end of the first Jerusalem council. And I hope it's the impulse that we're left with. I hope we don't simply come to church for a good moral uptick or maybe an interesting history lesson or like a fascinating or a funny sermon. Please, have mercy. What we want is practical guidance from the word of God so we can go and do his work in this world and we can hasten the soon coming of Jesus and go home. I'm done with here. We need to focus on there and do the work of God that he wants us to do. But Satan would be really happy to bide his time here. For the scripture says, for he knows that his time is short. Don't think he's not dragging his feet, kicking and screaming. He's going to use us to slow down the work if we allow him to. Friends, let the Holy Spirit work on your heart. Pray for other people with hard hearts. Let the Holy Spirit do his work. But once that is a conversion has happened, Now you get out and work for somebody else. We're supposed to be this missionary zeal, this missionary effort. Thus, our closing hymn today is number 369, Bringing in the Sheaves. That was the spirit that they left the first Jerusalem council with, and I hope it's the spirit we leave with today. Galvanized for mission, bringing in the sheaves. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.